0: Well, good evening or afternoon. What do we call it? Do we call it afternoon or evening? I'm not really sure at this time. It's the in betweeny bit. I can't say that. That doesn't work. Good in betweeny bit. Anyway, whatever. Um, It's good to be here. My name is Bernard. I'm the minister over at Good News Christian Church. And thanks so much just um, for praying for me as I make a ministry transition in the new year across to Summerlees Christian Church. Um, So I'm uh, presently at Good News Christian Church in Howrah. Uh, It's one of the Reformed churches, the Christian Reformed churches. Um, down here, and we've uh, enjoyed a close fellowship, really, between our denomination and and the Presbyterian denomination over many years. It's really wonderful, actually, to be able to come and visit and and preach to you guys and uh, and enjoy just your friendship as well. Um, So many faces that I've known for many years in this room. So um, please keep Ephesians chapter 2 open in front of you. Uh, This is my second of two weeks um, sharing with you from God's word to us in this section before we pray and write with sort of calling out anyway heckling don't heckle me please but I would like to know um I've got good news and I've got bad news which do you prefer to hear first you've got good news and bad news. you know how people come to you and they say that sometimes don't they got good news and there's bad news which do you want to hear um do you get the bad news out of the way first um tell it to me straight I th- I'm very much of that kind, right? Tell- give it to me straight. I want to know the bad news. You've already told me that there's bad news, so I need to know that already. Um, and, or, are you, um, are you one of those folks who likes the good news first? Why? Well, because I guess that places uh, the, con- that gives you context for interpreting the bad news, so that you know that even if there's there's bad news, you've had it framed very helpfully. and Perhaps I actually should opt for that sometimes because it flies me into a flap when I hear the bad news and actually I could do with the frame of the good news uh, to, to situate things and place things. According to some psychology research from a decade or, ago or so, uh, well, I wonder what proportion do you reckon wants uh, the good news or the bad news first? 78% of us would rather hear the bad news first. That surprise you, or is that about what you reckon? Seventy-eight percent of us. We want to hear, get it out of the way. Tell it to. Tell me how it is, and then hopefully the good news will help me to chart a course. beginning to prepare me uh, to get out of this sticky situation. I'll chart a course. I'll set a direction. So now, those of you who have um, faced complicated health issues uh, or um, uh, things of that kind, you'll know the frustration, the desperation. Uh, when you know that there is bad news coming but no one and not even the doctors can tell you exactly what it is just yet that's a torturous kind of a situation when there's bad news and well there's bad news and of course until you get to know the bad news and how bad it really is how can you possibly feel your way towards any kind of good news let alone uh, begin to get your way out of that thing but it's friendships or our relationships, where one or perhaps both of us can't quite face the real issues, aren't willing to acknowledge that there is bad news between us. Uh, We dig ourselves into financial holes in the same way. We're not willing to face the bad news. staring Things will come crashing down sooner or later. We get stuck in sinful habits sometimes and patterns. There's bad news, but are we willing to face it? Friends, have we the courage to hear the bad news? We know we need it but we know that we'll never get anywhere without it. So, welcome to Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, as I said, the second of my um, sermons with you, second of two sermons. um, Some folks, of course, Karen, shame. uh, We're characterised as people who fixate on bad news. That's all Christians are about. Ironically, other folks characterise Christians, uh, characterise us as being overly positive, and yet out of touch with reality. We peddle good news of an unsatisfyingly shallow kind we we suffer from both caricatures don't we which is a bit absurd with the gospel of jesus but friends ephesians 2 exposes both with the gospel of jesus and that's what we get to dig into right now so let's pray and turn to ephesians chapter 2. our father god in heaven you are the god of truth the god who reveals reality as it truly is We don't need to fear that you're deceiving us when you speak. We don't need to fear that you're hiding the worst from us or dumbing things down or twisting things with some ulterior motive. No, your ways are straight and above reproach, and without tricks. When you speak, you speak for our good. And yes, Father, you are good, both truth and goodness together. Would you confront us with your truth, the truth, here in Ephesians chapter 2 this evening, please? May it be for our good, may it be for our repair, may it indeed set us onward in the life that you intend for us, with renewed vigour and eagerness and with less complication and sin. So would you grant us repentance and faith yet again in your mercy to us please. Amen. You were dead. Now 78% of you to be quite pleased to hear that. I'm starting with the bad news, you understand. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church, a letter that he clearly intends uh, is going to remind them to do two things, to see their lives before the Lord in view of the Gospel, to see their lives before the Lord in view of the Gospel, that's chapters 1 to 3, that's where we are at the moment, and then to live their lives before the Lord In view of the gospel that's chapters four to six to see their lives and to live their lives chapter one was devoted last week we saw it to not only appreciating the glory and the beauty of the gospel of the lord jesus but to the adoration of god um, his praise would you look at who he is would you marvel at him the god whom we serve and know in the gospel the contrast then as we enter chapter two couldn't be more stark paul could not be more blunt Uh, I wonder if you're willing to accept this as a description of you, of your life, of your heart and your ways and mine as well by the way, I'm not just pointing the finger, you were dead, yes even you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, let's read it together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Could I just make um, two points here under this heading of you were dead? Uh, The first regards actually them out there when we read a passage like this, uh, because clearly... uh, Paul, the human author of this section of God's Word, clearly Paul is speaking to Christians, isn't he? That's who he's writing to. Paul is writing to the Christian church in uh, Ephesus and and indeed in that whole region, I believe. Uh, But uh, Paul is clearly speaking to Christians, you were dead, as in past tense. Uh, But uh, John Stott rightly points out, hang on, that means Paul is effectively saying, we were dead, yes, But that means they still are dead, as in the world around them, the world around us. And so just as a preliminary comment, I guess, as we survey this this idea that you were dead, hang on a second, that is a full-on thing to say, that they still are dead by implication. Here's John Stott, here's what he writes, and I think he's bang on. He says, uh, this statement about the deadness Of non-Christian people raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, lots of people appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete, another the lively mind of a scholar, a third the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality but the soul, they have no life. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of fallen human existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the Good Shepherd found us. Now, just to press that point a little bit further, uh, what does that mean? Do you know what that means? A a deadness uh, of the soul. It doesn't mean, biblically speaking, it doesn't mean that we have some mystical um, bit within us and it can kind of scurry around within us somehow and it's my soul and it's in my pinky now and then it moves into another bit of me and that bit's the dead bit. Um, No, as I make it out, uh, the soul, biblically speaking, is a way of speaking of us before God. Me in my relationship or my non-relationship with my maker, my creator, my judge, my God. And that is dead. Dead. Verse 4, both in the sense that we will die and we're deserving of wrath, that's what it says there, we will face judgment one day. No, but worse, we were dead, they are dead, even in the present, right now, the fallen human condition is a deadness before God, a deadness of the soul. Not just sick, all right, we've got to hear this, not just injured, not just stumbling, but gosh, I'm going to pull myself together, I'll get there, don't worry No, dead for God. You are dead, living with no higher reference than yourself, your flesh, your cravings, desires. We might dress it up. We're very sophisticated people. We dress things up very nicely and neatly. But we do what we want, and we live not by what God wants in his ways. That is death, says Paul, to live like that. You might be very much alive-looking, that God is dead to you and you are dead to God. That's spiritual deadness, you see. And it's a tragedy. In fact, but worse, actually, have a quick look at verse 2. Uh, so you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 1, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient is talking about Satan. You see, in the popular thinking of the time, there were uh, the uh, humans down here on earth, there was God way up in the heavens... And in the in-between bit, uh, the air, the, uh, the devil and his demons, the evil one and his demons, occupied that realm in between, you see. Our spiritual state is desperate indeed. Uh, before I move on, I said there were two things under this heading of you were dead, two things. So secondly, uh, so verse 1, Paul clearly speaks to people um, who have a pagan background, doesn't he? just the way that he's describing them there. Uh, And and we saw this in chapter one. So you used to walk that way. You were dead, um, cravings and desires and and thoughts. That, That was their frame of reference. But, and this might be the most important thing that you notice today in the text. Paul will not even let the historic believing in his era Jewish people of God off the hook. Because verse three, not you, but verse three, All of us also, Paul speaks as a a, a Jewish man living in the historical people of God, that heritage, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, let me just say this one thing. If we... I think sometimes we do this thing in church, if we so manoeuvre ourselves into thinking that repentance is up in church, if we fancy that our track to spiritual life is somehow different from the gospel for the world uh, of those who are lost and far from God, no, Paul says all of us, we need to let the seriousness of that sink in. Let us face that and search our hearts and look again at the gospel of Jesus for us. You were dead. Secondly, second major point, but God. But God. And may I say, um, those six letters, but God, those six letters are perhaps one of the best and most compact summaries of the gospel that I can think of. Now, I'd, I wonder how you would summarise that. How would you summarise the Gospel if you had just two words? Now, if you got three words, I'd actually go with Jesus is Lord, right? That's probably where I'd go with If I got a whole sentence, I reckon I'd go with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. If I got a whole sentence. Uh, if I had five minutes, perhaps I'd go with a, a, a Gospel summary, like two ways to live, God is the loving... Creator of the world and so on we go but if you gave me just two words and that's all i had i think you could do a lot worse than this but god is that your story is that what's happened in your life you were dead but verse four have a look with me chapter two verse four but because of his great love for us god who is rich in mercy made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Christian, do you know, of course you do, there there are some in this world who will tell you uh, that feelings of guilt or of shame, or of fear, or of regret, they are entirely misplaced, they are unhealthy for you to fixate upon and dwell on, and indeed that my whole first point will hold you back and will stifle your growth as a human being in this world. I'm sure you've come across that point of view, those folks will characterise Christians, won't they, as peddlers of bad news, and of hopelessness, the gospel is sinister and mean in their eyes. And to those folks, i want them to read this paragraph, wouldn't you? I'd, I'd like to say this, I want to argue that the gospel here, it's life-affirming and it's life-changing and it's progress-inspiring and it's hope-empowering, isn't it? Uh, look with me at, at verse 4, so we've already seen it, but where were you, Christian? Uh, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. But where are you now, Christian? Through faith in Christ and by the gospel of Christ's resurrection, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, much of that sentence probably sounds like Christian sort of uh, cliche, you know, our, the sort of words that we use: heavenly realms and uh, raised us up and all. that. Don't gloss over it too quickly. Where are you now, Christian? I'm going to collapse this thing and fall on my face. I know I'm not careful. Where are you now? Before you were on earth, it was saying, under Satan effectively, living him, living under him, uh, I'll use the word enslaved and hemmed in and ruled compasses and at worst uh, serving evil itself in the world, where are you now? Let me ask it like this, what are you sitting on now? I don't mean these chairs, nice as they are. In the text, aren't we on a throne It doesn't use the word, but in power. Isn't that where Jesus is? And with God, with a life that exists now entirely with reference to God. We tried to live without reference to him before. But now we live before him, given a life from him. You are now alive. Alive to live in ways that just weren't even open to you before. uh, Through your ignorance uh, and through evil and through who knows what else in our lives. You know the God who is, if you've met him in the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand before the Christ who lives, even though he died. You now have a choice that you didn't have before to get on and live. Do you see? But God. Let me just tease that out in one direction. Let me tease that out in just one direction. Do some of your um, non-Christian friends uh, sometimes speak of the Christian life, and maybe they speak of your Christian life, as so horribly constrained, and they tilt their head to the side, as they might say it, so horribly constrained. Look at all the things you can't do, things that you aren't allowed to do, you can't get away with, that you get told. Sometimes, uh, friends like this, they talk as if they're the free ones, they're the ones who really live. And in some ways, I do get it, because they are living a different way. But do you know what? You, Christian... You live your life every day before your God. That's what it's saying here. In peace with him, confidently before him, you have the frame of reference to your life of his love for you and the life that he wants to lead you into. His devotion to you, his blood for you, the hope that he's given you. You have a freedom and you have a power and you have, I would say, an enviably potent motivation to say no stupid things in your life and, uh, and uh, hollow empty things. You don't have to obey those cravings. You don't have to, you aren't compelled to do every self-absorbed thing that they ask you to or beg you to or make fun of you for avoiding. You don't have to do those things or to do, you see. Perhaps in the past you did feel compelled to follow or pressured Or to do what was expected or uh, that they expected and pressured you into. As a Christian, you sit with Christ in heaven and you get to say yes to God. And I want to say that is a spectacular way to be able to live here on earth. It is good. It is so very, very good, the life that God has given us. And it's not only in the high pressure moments of peers and, and parties or the private moments. You don't have to spend your money like them. Speak like that. Uh, Some of us here, I'll note a minority, uh, plan your retirement like they do. Spend your summers or your weekends or your tech time like they do. In fact, you mustn't, must you? There should be daylight between those who live and those who are dead and that daylight is but God. Thirdly and lastly and, uh, and more quickly now, by grace. So you were dead, you were dead, there's the bad news, but God and thirdly now, by grace. And I, I hope we've come to see this much, uh, 78% of us might prefer to hear the bad news first. Um, it it helps us to sort of frame our way out of whatever mess it is that we're in, whether it's financial or medical or whatever, um, and, and muddle our way out of it. But the Gospel says this, and I hope we've noticed it by now, in the end, you need more than an optimistic frame for your troubles. Why? Well, because you were dead. An optimistic frame isn't going to help you there. In fact, you are dead if you're living apart from Christ, is the message of this passage. The good news of but God... And the only good news that there is for someone who is dead is the good news that it is by grace. And that means we need to face this. It's not but me. It's not but God and also me. But God means it's by grace. It's all shaky grounds for general optimism. So long as you get it right and so long as you hold the line, so long as you keep it together for as long as you can... No, it means you are made alive by God for something magnificent, which He says He will do. It's entirely by grace. Let's have a look together from chapter 2 and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I think one of the um, happiest moments, it's more than moments, but it's not as long as times, I think one of the happiest moments in a person's life, and I hope you can relate to this, is when you um, lose yourself, and really delightedly so, in something that you just feel made for. There's something in life, Uh, an area of life where you feel that can you relate to that some of you are clearly um, very gifted and wonderful musicians and thank you very much for serving us and singing for us and leading us in that way Um, with music it happens in the moment doesn't it it's it's live you're right there in it and it's carrying you along and along you go with it and it's delightful when you can not only keep up but sort of breathe in it if you like Uh, I bet others of you, I suspect, are craftspersons. There's usually a bunch of craftspersons of one kind or another um, in any given church. And just occasionally you can sort of step back and look at what you've made or run your fingers over what you've just created, almost surprised that it came from you. It's beautiful and it's lovely. Um, I think some mothers, um, I obviously can't relate to this from personal experience, but I think some mothers feel it when they're feeding their babies, especially just the wonder and the marvel. Have you had a moment in your life that you felt that you were simply made for? Maybe for others of us, it it might not be sort of skill-based or whatever, but it's those moments, perhaps of laughter or of joy, where it feels like you're exactly where you were meant to be among precisely the people that you were built to be with on this planet. Gosh, I hope you have those moments at least sometimes. Paul says, Christian, do you know that when you walk in the ways of God in this wayward world, that is precisely where God made you to be? What a thought. Sometimes it may not feel like it. Other times uh, it may feel like it and it's delightful. Occasionally it might feel like the hardest thing you've ever done in the whole world and it's monstrous. But Christian, that is the moment that you were made for, to walk in his ways in a wayward world. Verse 10, have another look with me there. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And let's just underscore what he's just said about, about works and all the rest. It's not to get his attention, or to convince him finally, would you please just love me now? No, no, you've been saved by grace. It says, do we treasure as precious in our eyes every good work that we get to do today to the glory of Jesus and by his grace? And that includes um, song and music, it includes craftsmanship, it includes motherhood and friendship and all of those things, but it also includes Christ-like self-sacrifice, it includes unnoticed acts of love. it includes private prayer for struggling Christians. It includes putting aside my cravings and my desires or my moods or my misfortunes, to be those rays of sunshine in your life. the light of Christ in your life. Is that what you were made for? It is Christian. It is. What a lovely thought let me close with this. Do you want the bad news or the good news? The way verse 8 is written in English, have a look with me at verse 8 just for a moment as we close. The way verse 8 is written in English, it kind of sounds like the gift of God is just faith, doesn't it? You have a look at verse 8 there, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. But, it, but is that right? Can that possibly... Is the good news... Just that God has given us a bit of faith to get through a hard world. Is that the sum total of the Christian good news? No, Christian. Our lives are a gift from first to last. So yes, of course, faith is a gift of God. It's not from ourselves, we know that. But the gift of God here is actually that whole sentence. It's actually much clearer in the Greek than it is in the English, but I just wanted to point this out to you. It's not just that God has given you faith to get you through It's the whole paragraph there, the whole sentence, the grace of God to make the dead live and to make the lost saved and to make those facing terrible wrath live and look forward instead to the incomparable riches of His grace. That's what you have, Christian, in Christ. Christian, you were dead, but God, by grace. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, how extravagant and how generous and how extraordinary that you would look down upon this world of spiritual death and of disinterest in you and of disdain for your ways and that you would intervene. You'd intervene in our lives. Not only intervene, but that you would send Christ not to condemn, but to save and to breathe life and to make us the people that we can scarcely believe that we could ever become. And yet that is your purpose for us, your handiwork created in Christ to do good works that you've prepared. God, may we walk in those. May we live in those and thrive in those. And each day walk further and further from those old ways, those dead ways. Father, we really do long to see uh, those whom we love who seem to stuck uh, in their own ways and thoughts and and their own little world, we long for them to find Jesus and to find life, extend your reach to them. We know that you can do it, and we long to see your glory expressed and visible in that way, please. Would you help us to display the deep and rich goodness of our new life to a world that so sorely needs to experience your love? And we ask that you'd enable us to do that today and tomorrow and the next day to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.